All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to part two of what we've called Rise of the Nazi Cult. And we have with us the expert on both occultism and Nazism, Peter Lavanda. And I just want to say, Peter, before we continue, that the name that escaped us was Marta Council. Yes, that's her. Yeah. Yes. I looked it up in the break. Marta Council, yes, yeah. exactly. We've been covering a lot of names. I guess many of these are strange names to most of the listeners, but it's easier if we go into more of what they did. Now, for instance, you mentioned some things in part one here that you could explain a little. Let's start with um, the Spear of Destiny. What was all that uh, fuss about? Mm -hmm. Um, As it happened uh, a couple of years ago, I was interviewed um, in a documentary on this very subject for Brad Meltzer. He has a series on um, the History Channel, I think it was, called um, uh, Brad Meltzer Decoded, I think. And I did the, the about a half an hour of that program uh, concerning this very subject because it's something that, is, that fascinates a lot of people. There is no question that Hitler uh, was not fascinated by the so-called Spear of Destiny. He grew up in Austria. And the so-called spear was in the uh, museum in Vienna. Mm. So he saw the spear uh, as a young man, and he saw it again when, uh, after Anschluss and Germany acquired Austria, invaded it, basically, um, immediately those treasures from the Museum of Vienna were taken out of Vienna and taken to Nuremberg. What is the spear of destiny? Supposedly, the spear of destiny is the spear that pierced the side of Jesus on the cross, According to the Gospels, as Jesus is on the cross, there's a Roman soldier. Uh, Well, his name is not mentioned in the Gospels. We get this as a tradition later. Mm. His name is Longinus, and he takes the spear and he stabs Jesus in order to kill him, put him out of his misery, basically. Um, And that spear then becomes a sacred symbol. If you are uh, familiar with the Eastern Orthodox Church, for instance, uh, they perform the the Mass, uh, what they call the Divine Liturgy, in the original form, and they use a golden spear. It's a very small golden knife in order to reenact this moment Mm. of piercing the side of Christ. They pierce a loaf of bread, and at that moment, uh, one of the altar boys, one of the other priests, pours water and wine into a chalice to symbolize the blood and water that issued forth from Jesus' body. Mm. So there's a lot of mystique around this idea of the spear. Um, it was believed that the spear was discovered uh, possibly uh, around the 3rd or 4th century of the Common Era in the Middle East and was brought back to Europe uh, after the time of Constantine. And the spear was then a kind of holy relic that was used as a source of power, an instrument of power. Whoever had it had access to a kind of an occult of, uh, energy, mm. let's say, that's in the spear. Well, there's photographs of Hitler... Uh, after Anschluss in Vienna, standing outside the glass box that holds the spear and staring at it. Um, And then shortly after that, that spear and all the crown jewels of the Habsburg dynasty, uh, they're all removed from Vienna and they wind up in Nuremberg. Himmler 
the head of the SS actually had a replica made of the spear, an exact replica that he kept on his desk. Why didn't he just take the spear? He had the power to. Well, this was kept, I believe, in a vault in Nuremberg. Nuremberg, you see, was considered a sacred city to the Germans. Mm. Nuremberg was kind of a holy place, a kind of Jerusalem. So it was believed that the these implements should be kept in that location. Uh, Himmler had control of all of that anyway. Mm. So he didn't really need to have the spear itself on his desk. And anyway, it's possible somebody would have stolen it, uh, even from Himmler. Mm. So he had an exact replica, a perfect replica made. There's a photograph uh, in a book published a few years ago which shows that spear sitting on Himmler's desk. So we have this idea that this was extremely important to the Nazis. Mm. Uh, and then, then there's some mystery about what happened after the war. Because after the war, did the real spear become repatriated and wind up back in Austria? Or was the, the spear in Austria the artifact that Himmler had made, the replica? Mm. And did the real spear escape? And this has been part of the story, part of the mythology about the Spear of Destiny. Did it find its way onto a submarine? Was it taken to South America or to Antarctica or one of these stories uh, where it's waiting for the new you know, uh, Aryan Messiah to come and to brandish it? and to declare his new world order. I mean, who knows? But um, tests have not been conclusive on the spear that is in uh, in Vienna. Interesting. We know that some of the uh, materials used on the spear are old, uh, but they're not old enough to have been uh, 2,000 years old. But the actual spear itself, the actual material of the spear, I do not believe has been tested. What's been tested is the, um, the bindings of the spear because it's been wrapped uh, and there are nails involved and everything else. Uh, but the actual spear itself, the point of the spear, I believe, has not been um, uh, carbon dated or tested in any way yet. No, but uh, the original spear that was in Germany could have been a falsification anyway. Sure. I think uh, this Ravenscroft you mentioned uh, in part one, didn't he conclude that the CIA took it and that's why America <laughs> became a new world power? <laughs> That's why I really don't use Ravenscroft as a source. <laughs> um, I find that really, you know, I mean, there's the truth is much stranger than fiction. Yeah. And if you're really concentrating the truth, you'll find some very amazing things. But me thinking the CIA has a spear of destiny, I think they wish they did maybe at this point. Um, it might be useful, but yeah. I, I, I don't believe it. No, I'm not even 100 percent sure that uh, the spear, you know, was replaced, you know, by the Nazis that somehow the fake spear is in Vienna. Mm. I'm not 100% convinced of that either. I think that probably is what, you know, the Habsburgs had uh, in the museum. I think that's the spear. But if that's so, then what happened to the replica? Mm. We don't know. We've never found Himmler's replica, and that was a very important object for Himmler. So what happened to it? Where did it go? We, we simply don't know. But then a lot of things were stolen uh, by the Nazis at that time. Mm. which have never been found. And uh, there's a whole documentation on that. Mm. There's gold, there's valuables, artworks, manuscripts, things that have disappeared forever um, that we've never found. So it may be, it may be an Indiana Jones story. You know, there may be the spear sitting in a, in a warehouse somewhere in Washington, D.C. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll cover a couple of more fancy stuff before we get back down to Earth again. What about uh, the expeditions to Tibet? Well, I find that to be one of the most fascinating stories because I was not aware they actually took place until I stumbled upon the documents in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. I had gone there in the 1970s uh, to… To Tibet? Uh, in, no, 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 to the National Archives, oh, yeah. not to Tibet. No, okay. 
I had gone to the National Archives in order to to, to look at the captured German records. Mm. I was uh, working on the book that would eventually become Unholy Alliance, and I was you know doing some research there, and uh, uh, the archivist there recognized you know, what I was looking for, and he said, well, take a look at these microfilms, and uh, it turned out to be the microfilms of the Ananerba SS, wow. which, you know, in those days, we had Trevor Ravenscroft, we had a few other um, uh, authors like Powell's and Bergier, The Morning of the Magicians, uh, books like that that were very speculative mm. on the idea of Nazi occultism. And then suddenly I'm staring at the Nazi documents themselves, which not only verify uh, the, the fact that the Nazis were interested in occultism, but amplified on that considerably. And one of the things that I discovered was this fascinating expedition to Tibet. Huh. What was an SS expedition in 1938, remember? Yeah. This was the time when the war was just about to break out. It broke out in September 39, but in 1938 there was already Anschluss, there was already a tremendous upheaval in Europe, hmm. and yet Himmler decides he's going to send an expedition to Tibet, of all places. Hmm. And they go. Uh, the expedition goes to Tibet. Photographs of it are reproduced in Unholy Alliance. You'll see a swastika flags. Mm -hmm. They were not covering you know, who they were, what they were doing. These were SS men. These were SS officers, all of them. And their idea was they were going to collect as much information about Tibet as possible. But for what purpose? There were multiple purposes. One pur purpose, of course, was political. Could they build an alliance with Tibet against British India in the event that war broke out between Germany and England? Mm. Uh, would Tibet side with them? That was one potential uh, policy they wanted to discuss. Uh, something else they wanted to find out, were the Tibetans Aryans? You know, did the Aryan race come from Tibet? Yeah, they were looking for their ancestors. So to they speak. were looking for their ancestors. Mm. So Bruno Beger, the man that I mentioned, who was a war criminal, there are photographs of him very gleefully measuring the skulls of Tibetans with calipers. When I'm saying the skulls of living Tibetans, with calipers trying to figure out, you know, through measurements, the sort of phony ethnography they were doing to see if the measurements would match up with Aryan measurements, if these were really Aryans in disguise, you know. Um, so that was going on. They, they uh, observed a lot of social customs, which they wrote about extensively. They uh, took flora and fauna back with them, uh, plants, animals, all sorts of things back with them. There was also the... Excuse I me, I heard they also took back with them a small Tibetan army? Have you heard well, anything about that? Well, sure. That's been reported, I think, again, in Trevor Ravenscroft. Um, I don't think it was a Tibetan army they took back with them. They had uh, uh, Sherpas, of course, that were guiding them you know, through into the passes and then back out again. I think that some Tibetan personnel did wind up in Berlin. There have been uh, reports persistent that there were Tibetan monks in Berlin when uh, war was over. Dressed in SS uniforms. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, please continue. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's exactly. And plus, they also brought back, of course, the Tibetan scriptures. I spoke briefly when I was writing on Holy Alliance with Dr. Robert Thurman, mm. of course, the famous Tibetan scholar, mm. uh, when he was at, I think he may still be at uh, Columbia University. Uh, and I had gone to Tibet House in New York. I had seen the film footage of the Tibet expedition, which nobody knew really was there. I saw the film footage of an OSS uh, expedition, American intelligence, uh, following like maybe a year later, going to Tibet as well. This is a tremendous story was was waiting here to be told. Yeah. And I called Robert Thurman and I said, you know, there's a, a record the Nazis brought back uh, a 108 volume text from Tibet. Do you have any idea what that was? He got very irritated that I brought this up. 
Um, of course, he's a very he's a friend of the Dalai Lama, and he's very mm. he's a Tibetan expert, and he's the father, of course, of Uma Thurman. For those who mm. are wondering, and um, he says probably the Kangjur, which is the Tibetan scripture, it's sort of their version of the Buddhist canons, mm. and he said that's probably what it was, and then he hung up. <laughs> so I didn't get much more out of him after that. I wanted to talk about Tibetans in Berlin and all the rest of it, but he wasn't yeah. he was not having any, no. so that that didn't happen. But so there was this expedition. They came back. And then they went all through Germany with a kind of pictorial film uh, presentation hmm. of, you know, Secret Tibet. I believe it was called Geheimnis Tibet, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. And they had, uh, you know, photographs, pictures. They showed, uh, you know, they were glorifying in the fact they had been to Tibet and what a strange place, what an exotic place. And they sort of, you know, dined out on this story for, for quite some time. There's photographs of Himmler with Ernst Schaefer, who was the leader of the expedition, with Bruno Beger and the others. Uh, Himmler was very proud of this uh, expedition, and there's a possibility there was another experiment that was conducted in Tibet, which goes back to our hollow earth theory. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that maybe Tibet being the highest point in the world on top of the, the Himalayas mm-hmm. would have been an excellent place to test this hollow earth theory. So there was that and a kind of a, a world ice theory thing. Yeah, if we are inside the earth, yeah. it would be. It would, but yeah. if we are outside the earth, it would be the worst kind of place. The worst place, exactly. <laughs> Even though they do have myths of Shambhala and Agartha and all that. Sure. Mm. So this is what this is another thing that they were supposed to do. They were supposed to conduct these scientific exp, uh, experiments up there as well. Mm. So all of this was part of that Tibet expedition. Nothing to do directly with Heinrich Herrer, the guy of Seven Years of Tibet oh, okay. that they made the movie about. Not a direct connection, mm. but as I point out in the Hitler legacy, uh, we now know that uh, Heinrich Herrer was not only an SS officer, he was an officer in the SA as well, the Sturmabteilung, which was the stormtroopers. Mm. So he was a dedicated Nazi, an Austrian, in the days when the Nazi party was outlawed in Austria before Anschluss. This was a very dedicated Nazi. He worked for intelligence services, uh, I believe because he was in Tibet at the time the Dalai Lama had to escape, that he was also involved with the CIA, uh, which was trying to arrange for the Dalai Lama to escape. There were a lot of high-level discussions going on while Herrer was in the country. Uh, wait, wait a minute. Uh, are you now talking after the war? Because CIA wasn't in existence before the war. No, Herrer was there after the war. Right. Herrer got into Tibet yeah. right around 1945. Ah, okay. okay. He was a prisoner of war in northern India. Mm. Uh, he escaped a couple of times. The last time with his friend Peter Aufschnagel, they managed to cross the mountains into Tibet. And so they were there for seven years. Um, roughly 45 to 52. Mm. So yes, he was there when there, the escape was taking place uh, of the Dalai Lama, and the CIA was founded, as you know, in 1947. So we were in discussions with the Dalai Lama in the 1940s, late 1940s, as to what he should do. Will we give him guns? Will we give him, you know, will we defend Tibet against the Chinese? So on and so forth. Harrer was part of those discussions. Harrer was there, mm. and there is now a strong. Uh, amount of evidence to suggest that Herrer was working for American intelligence at the time, but he might have been working for other intelligence agencies as well, mm. which would have included uh, Reinhard Galen's. Uh, the yeah. Galen. The reason is for the same reason the Nazis hated communists in Europe. Mm. They also hated communists in Asia, right. and Herrer was in the excellent position to provide intelligence on communism in Asia. And he went back to Asia a number of times after Tibet. 
And those trips were always very suspicious. But before the end of the war, was he then not an expedition man? He was stationed in Germany. He was he he came to fame because he climbed the uh, I believe it was the north face of the Eiger, so he was one of the first uh, people to do that. He has his picture taken with uh, Adolf Hitler and his climbing party uh, for that reason. So he was given so many awards. He was uh, a cherished mountaineer for the Nazis, and he did not participate in the war itself. He stayed behind. Uh, and then there's this strange story of Harrer uh, going to India. He's going to start climbing mountains for some sort of ex-scientific purpose, which makes no sense at all because the war was already right underway. He was in British-occupied mm. India at the time. The whole thing smacks of an intelligence yeah. operation. We think he was lying through his teeth about why he was captured and, and what he was up to. And then he escapes into Tibet and the rest mm. is history. I see. You, you did mention that uh, Himmler was fond of issuing expeditions, sitting safe and sound in his German office and getting reports. Yeah. And you mentioned looking for the grail, uh, like uh, going retrieving the old Qatar's uh, places. But one thing that's always fascinated me, and actually we'll have programs on this topic in the future, but you could probably also contribute to this, and that is the weird obsession they had with the Poles. I remember one of the first books I read about it was Professor Jocelyn Goodwin's Arctos. Yes. Um, what's your take on this? Antarctica and Arctis. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it is an obsession and it stems exactly from the belief that Thule Gesellschaft. The Thule, Thule is uh, supposedly a uh, a kingdom in the ice in the, in one of the poles probably in the north mm. pole i mean there is a city i believe in greenland called ultima thule yeah um so this is you know this is part of this mystique that there is a place um which was a, a kind of shangri-la or shambhala uh below the earth at the poles uh that the uh that their race came from that if you could go there you would find, you know, cities underground and all the rest of it, part of the hollow earth theory. And you could only access them, obviously, through the poles because they're so inaccessible to humans anyway. It makes the perfect hiding place for a secret civilization. And we know, for instance, that the Germans sent an expedition to the South Pole, to Antarctica, uh, just before, again, before the war started. I think it was in 1938, if I'm not mistaken, they sent uh, an Antarctic expedition, might have been earlier, in order to find out what was going on down there. Um, they planted swastika flags everywhere. They claimed Antarctica for the Third Reich. Yes, you know? and they did this in Norwegian territory with complete disregard for international law. Of course, <laughs> why? Why would they stop? <laughs> why would they start now? Yeah. You know? Well, this was yeah. this was before the invasion of Poland. Yeah. So you could argue this was the first actual invasion of any other country. Yes. You could make that case. Yeah, the invasion of Antarctica. It just dawned upon me. They actually invaded Norway first. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Queen Maud's land, but continue. Yes, Queen Maud's land, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which they called New Swabia? Neue, Neue Schwabenland, yeah. So, yeah, so they called it Neue Schwabenland. And what is interesting um, about it is that the man who was in charge of that expedition uh, whose name I forget, but I believe it's in my book, uh, Hitler Legacy, if I'm not mistaken. The man who was in charge of that expedition actually survived uh, the war uh, and became kind of part of the Nazi underground. Although he was a scientist, he was a uh, uh, involved in uh, meteorology and, and those kinds of studies. He, for some reason, uh, maintained contact with a lot of the old comrades after the war, a lot of whom had been scientists, uh, 
we brought some over uh, from Paperclip, for instance, of course, as everyone knows. Uh, he, he was not one of them, but he did survive the war. And then a funny thing happens. Uh, I think everyone who's listening to this may already be aware that directly after the end of the war, in a time of tremendous upheaval, economic collapse all over the place, uh, everything is in chaos, the United States decides to send an expedition of their own to Antarctica. And it's known as Operation High Jump. At a tremendous expense, we send an enormous flotilla, a convoy of ships, thousands of men, all sorts of materiel goes down to Antarctica supposedly to conduct scientific experiments. Like we needed to do this immediately. You know, we had just defeated <laughs> Germany. With bombers. And, yes, with bombers. Uh, all yes. kinds of weapons. Yeah, yeah. 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 What was the point of that? You know, we still don't know exactly because the reasons we're given are all very vague and ambiguous and don't make any sense. And the fact is they really didn't take any scientific instrumentation with them. So, And it's still classified, isn't it? It's still classified, sure. Sure. So you were saying that uh, they may have established bases there then already in 38? Well, it seems as though they did something there. It was the International Geophysical Year. Okay, that's that was the uh, sensible occasion for the Nazis to go to Antarctica. Alfred Richter? Could that be him? Yeah, I think it might have been Richter, yes. Okay. I think so. Yes. So... This was their ostensible reason for going down there, the International Geophysical Year. But we had no reason to go during Operation High Jump. There was no particular reason for us to be down there, especially as the war in Japan had just ended. We were still involved with the occupation. We were still involved with you know, Japanese soldiers not knowing the war was over, still fighting. And yet, for some reason, we find it's convenient to send an entire Navy down to Antarctica. One of the people who was on Operation High Jump, who participated in that event... Um, was a man that I talk about in the Hitler legacy, who was a uh, had been a member of the German Secret Service before the war. During the war, for some reason, they allowed him into the U.S. Navy. And then after the war, um, he goes back into basically running the American branch of the German underground hmm. in Odessa. Uh, a very um, interesting, interesting guy. Um, kind of a, a of a dyed in the wool Nazi and that you would not really expect to find anywhere a very uh, prominent human being in the in the underground but still he he worked for the Americans during the war yeah I think they didn't realize that he was a card carrying member of the uh, of the Sitcher Heidsteins of the SD of the mm. Secret Service so there is something very strange about that story that I've not been able to to understand and uh, I'm still trying to figure that out because there are elements of it that are very mysterious. This man, who knew a lot of people that I knew when I was doing the research for this book back in the 70s and the 80s when I was doing that, uh, we had for crossed... For Unholy Alliance. For Unholy Alliance, mm -hmm. yeah. In those days, I knew a lot of people that uh, we called neo-Nazis, who actually, in my way of thinking, were just Nazis, um, in, in the American Nazi movement. Uh, he was part of that uh, background. His name was H. Keith Thompson. And he seemed to be independently wealthy. That's kind of mysterious where his money came from. But he was very involved with Hans Ulrich Rudel, with Otto Skorzeny, with Savitri Devi. As you mentioned, all of these people were part of his circle of, of friends and acquaintances. Um, he was very involved with the Liberty Lobby in the United States, which is an extreme right conservative group. Very extreme right, let's put it okay. that way. Yeah, they often disguise themselves with the world's liberty. So Yeah, yeah absolutely, mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were the ones who financed... Uh, SS General Otto Rehmer 
to come to the United States to give a speech, you know, in favor of the Republican Party, you know. And attending that speech was Pat Buchanan, a very famous American politician and ideologue. Uh, it was a, a, a Thompson is behind a lot of very strange material, but what your listeners may find astonishing and may refuse to believe it, although I give the evidence, is that H. Keith Thompson was not only a Nazi, was not only a member of the German secret police, hmm. secret service, not only did he constantly say that he had taken an oath to the Fuhrer, to Adolf Hitler, and he, he was faithful to that oath for the rest of his life, but... He was also the literary agent for Marguerite Oswald, the mother of Lee Harvey Oswald. He was the person representing her to publishing houses to get her a publishing contract. Right. Wow, that's classical Lavender connections right there, people. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, is, it, it's, it was astonishing when yeah. I saw it because uh, if we look at Lee Harvey Oswald's address book, that was taken when he was arrested for the assassination. We find a lot of German vocabulary. He was teaching himself German mm. for some reason. And he also had the address of the American Nazi Party mm. in his address book. We don't know. And uh, the leader, what was his name? Um, Rock something? George Lincoln Rockwell. But Rockwell had been assassinated. I think by this time he was uh, talking to someone or he had known about someone called Dan Burroughs. Uh, Dan Burroughs was running the American Nazi Party out of an apartment in Queens, New York. Um, and he was working with a man called Roy Frankhauser, who was uh, a Ku Klux Klan um, uh, official of some kind. In, in New York? <laughs> well, in, well, the Ku Klux Klan base was in Pennsylvania, no. which doesn't make any sense either, <laughs> okay. I know. The largest Klan operation in the country was in New Jersey, wow. which people don't really realize. But uh, Frank Hauser was in Pennsylvania. I met Frank Hauser, um, not realizing that he was the man who knew Dan Burroughs. Dan Burroughs committed suicide in Roy Frank Hauser's house when it was revealed that Dan Burroughs was a Jew. Wow. So there's all kinds of stories. That, that does smell, though, of murder, but I, I don't know. It's just uh, speculation. I, you know, yeah. I mean, Frank Hauser was known uh, for a lot of violence. Frank Hauser, when I met him, pointed a Luger at me as if to say, don't pull any funny stuff or I'll shoot you. <laughs> and I was just there to interview him. Um, you know, and he had pictures of the Klan, photographs of Klansmen, burning crosses, right. the whole thing. Uh, very involved with the, uh, with the neo-Nazi party organizations in the States. Very involved with the Nazi oh, underground oh, as well. Yeah. You know what? I look so forward to have a show with you on the post-war. Uh, oh, the post-war is... Because <laughs> that needs its, its own show. It is. Yeah. But could we just go a little back to Antarctica? Sure. And uh, you mentioned this uh, Richter or Richter, something. Because if what you're saying is uh, real, then he must be very important uh, also for the post-war basis. He survived, like I say, the war. I know this because I was in a privileged position to see a an address book um, of a Nazi who died in Asia. Mm. And this, uh, his name, his address, everything appears in this address book. And at that time, I believe he was living in South America. Mm. So he was one of the ones who, for some reason, found it necessary to escape. But why would they go to Antarctica in the first place? What was their obsession with the Poles? Was it just practical to have bases, or does this uh, fit in with their philosophy somehow? No, I believe it's their philosophy. One of the philosophies that they promoted highly in those days as a real scientific theory 
was the uh, the um, the world ice theory, mm. as they called it, uh, invented by a man called Hans Horberger. The world ice theory uh, said that the world goes through these periods of getting very cold, and you know there's ice ages and all the rest of it. But there's this idea that um, in Antarctica or in the poles in general, there is archaeological evidence of earlier civilizations. So this was part of the idea that the Nazis had. Remember, they were they were very interested in finding evidence of an Aryan civilization that was global. Excuse me, was yes. the Piri Reisma generally known at this point? I don't I don't know if it was known. I mean, I have a book almost within arm's reach, but I don't know if it was really known to the Nazis at that time. The Piri Rice map that might have come. That, that sounds like a 1930s discovery, though, doesn't it? I mean, I'm yeah, I'm trying to yeah piss. after the the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. yeah, but it would make sense to look for an antediluvian civilization in the South Pole, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And if people who people who believed the hollow earth stories, you know, mm. uh, would have, you know, taken it for granted that yeah. there was an entranceway somewhere down there. Mm. Um, also, there was the idea constantly the Nazis had, uh, Himmler had and his people that, you know, you could spy on the rest of the world from different parts of the world if, you know, we truly live inside a hollow earth. All of these scientific theories got mixed up together. Um, but I think that there was a belief as well among the Americans that uh, certain high-ranking Nazi personnel technology, weaponry, made its way to Antarctica after the war by U-boat. Mm. And this was something that a lot of people took for granted. They, they believed this was possible. We know that U-boats were as far south as Argentina, Rio de la Plata, uh, down South America towards Patagonia. And it's only uh, you know, a relatively short uh, a sail from you know, the southern tip of South America to the northern tip of Antarctica. So there might have been a belief that somehow the Nazis during that international geophysical year, that they had established a base in Neue Schwabenland, as they called it, and that they had, you know, they planted Nazi flags, we know that, all over the place. They dropped them from airplanes and that sort of thing, claiming the land. And it's possible that people believed there was a Nazi base down there, that somehow the Nazis had found a way to build, you know, a year-round uh, a bunker in that part of the world as well. So we just don't know. We don't have the, the documents for high jump, you know, our expedition, is is a mystery. I still find it unbelievable that we would have done this at that point in time. Um, and the Nazi, it's a persistent rumor about Nazis. And one of the persistent rumors, by the way, about Antarctica and the Poles in general, was promoted by a man called Ernst Zundel, uh, who ran a, a publishing house in Canada, mm. which was very revisionist. Uh, the Holocaust didn't happen, uh, so on and so forth. He was arrested, actually, in Canada for, for doing that. But he published books uh, uh, insisting that there was a UFO base uh, in that part of the world. And there was a Nazi UFO Antarctica conne connection, excuse me, a connection between the Nazis and, and UFOs based in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, uh, if you know uh, Linda Moulton Howe, mm -hmm. uh, UFO researcher, a very famous uh, researcher, mm -hmm. um, had actually interviewed a man who worked for... Uh, the Americans, the American, I guess from the American Navy, had done overflights of Antarctica much later than Operation High Jump. Mm. But um, his reports seemed to indicate that there was a base down there of some kind, that there was something going on down there. It was uh, weaponry that was being stored down there of some kind. There was some experiments taking place there, or there was an alien presence, something of that nature, which uh, we had sent scientists down to Antarctica 
they returned from uh, their visit to the specific site very deep in the continent, uh, came back terrified, mm. uh, were debriefed and sent, scattered around the world so they couldn't tell their story to anyone. So this is one of the stories that uh, Linda Moulton Howe's come up with, and she's generally pretty reliable mm. uh, when it comes to this type of information. So I'm interested to find out more about that. There could be a connection there, which we can't even begin to speculate, that it has to do with off-world you know, matters and oh, yeah. you know, Nazi UFO you know, uh, research and that sort of thing. This is a good point to pitch a future show. We'll have, like I mentioned uh, briefly, we'll have uh, an entire show on the Antarctica Nazi connection. And Peter has now already mentioned some of it. So you can look forward to that, people. It's an incredibly interesting topic. And uh, I just see here that up until 1938, there was three, 1939 actually was the last, three German Antarctic expeditions. And at least the third one was so big that they could establish bases based on that. And obviously we know from later history that UFO sightings have been associated to the poles. There's been alleged crashes even up here on the north. Uh, in Spitsbergen and uh, it's just a very it won't die this modern myth about UFOs, Nazis and the Poles there's something there to be retrieved for sure I think we should get a little down to earth now because you you mentioned reality is more interesting than fiction and there is some very interesting aspects we haven't touched so much upon I want to begin with you mentioned briefly the American connection Ford what about Bush <laughs> yeah, uh, I once um, made a presentation at a university down here uh, in the United States in Florida um, when I was discussing this and a professor stopped me uh, in the middle of it because he was certain I had no proof of what I was talking about. Um, I don't know if you know Florida very well, but Southern Florida in particular is um, – well, let's say, put it this way, there's a very strong Republican presence uh, down here. Axel Cuban uh, people. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Right. So you have this kind of uh, idea that you shouldn't say anything bad about Republicans. Mm. Um, and here I was saying that the Bushes were involved with the Nazis, um, which is exactly what they did not want to hear. And But I, I had the documentation in my presentation, so I could show you know court documents and I could show newspaper articles and all the rest of it. Mm. The... Um, when we're talking about the Bush family, we have to go back to Prescott Bush. We have to go back to um, the uh, uh, Avril Harriman, for instance, and, and some of the other people that uh, were very closely related, both biologically and in business, with the Bushes. Mm. Um, so we're talking about a dynasty of families mm. um, that goes back. They're extremely uh, blue blood Americans from that point of view. Um, they represent... Uh, a very a, a distinct class within American society. We're supposed to have no classes in our country, but of oh. course we do, yeah. uh, very much so. And anyone who has crossed uh, paths with the, the blue-blooded Americans knows that they are definitely considered to be an inferior race compared to them. Um, we just don't live in the same world at all. We don't have the same expectations. Yeah, the so-called two Americas that we yeah, hear oh so yes, much about. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm. There's at least two, yeah. if not more. Mm. And this, this 1%, as we say at the top, uh, lives in a completely different world. They live in a bubble of their own. The Bushes are no exception to this. They, are, they probably represent it as, as clearly as anyone. In fact, 
we mentioned Nixon earlier. Nixon would have been considered uh, really second rate as far as his, you know, his pedigree is concerned. Mm-hmm. The Bushes, of course, go back a long time. They're Yale University, you know, uh, lineage. They're, they're heritage members of the Skull and Bone Society and all the rest of it. They go back, you know, to the hardcore, uh, came off the Mayflower kind of Americans. Mm-hmm. So they were very prominent supporters of the Nazis, I have to say it, since the 1930s at least, if not earlier, and really into the war. Their business operations had to be shut down by the U.S. government under the Trading with the Enemies Act because they were still dealing with Nazi Germany after we had declared war on them. Uh, The Bushes, to the Bushes, to the Bush family, business is business. Uh, There's no ideology involved, uh, ostensibly. Of course, they wouldn't really go into business with communists, um, uh, but they would go into business with the Nazis because they felt the Nazis were a great bulwark against communism. Um, they were the ones who were going to protect the world from you know, the, the sort of rabid mongrel races that were overtaking the planet due to Bolshevism and, and communism. So the Bushes were dead set against anything to do with communism, and they were very sympathetic towards the goals of the Nazis. Eugenics was a major issue for them as well. Mm. It was actually the Bush family that ensured that German scientists would be able to attend a meeting in New York City on eugenics. I believe that was also in 1938 and um, paid for their passage Mm. on the Hamburg America line, Hmm. um, which they owned a controlling share of. So we had Nazi scientists coming to the United States to talk about, you know, how to deal with, you know, subhuman races. Uh, and all the rest of it. So the Bushes were very front and center with this type of operation. Of course, their business dealings uh, across the board in Nazi Germany, we don't really know. I think the average person doesn't understand the extent to which American business was in bed with Nazi industrialists and Nazi bankers before, during, and after the war. Mm. This was something that uh, business knows no ideology. In this case, business knows no nationalism either. Yeah, Joseph Farrell mentioned uh, in a show we just had with him that uh, the leader of the bank in Switzerland was an American. Yes, I talk about him uh, at some length in Hitler Legacy. Um, We're talking about a man who was put in charge of the Bank for uh, International Settlements in Switzerland. Now, the Bank of International Settlements was set up by Helmar Schacht, who was Hitler's banker. Um, he was the man who was performed the economic miracle and turned Germany, Nazi Germany, into this economic machine and this military machine. Schock was responsible for that. He created this Bank of International Settlements in order to repay Germany's war debt from World War I, mm. ostensibly. Of course, that never happened. Uh, the, <laughs> the bank never paid any German war debts at all. I know. Uh, what happened instead was Germany used it as a slush fund and to launder money. Mm and to hide the gold that they had seized from other banks, from other countries, and pushed it into that bank. And we have, you know, our American, you know, guy sitting there, very, you know, happy, running this banking operation. Mm. And as late as, um, uh, what was it, maybe uh, 1943, I think, if not 44, he was back in the United States telling financiers on Wall Street not to worry about investments in Germany, everything was going fine. Hitler had everything under control. Hmm. So, and this was as late as 43. Well, that was when the war turned. 
Well, the war really turned in '44 with the invasion, right? With the D-Day invasion. Yeah, I was thinking about Stalingrad, um, sure, smelling, uh, you know, the wind. But yeah, yeah. But officially, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. In '43, sure, the writing was on the wall. But in '44, we knew it was over. Yeah. In '44, it was obvious it was over. But in '43, he still felt that the not, that's why he went to New York. He mm. went to New York to calm everybody down. Don't worry about it. Hitler has everything under control. Right. That's the kind of mentality that we're dealing with. You know, mm. it's a it's a mentality that's totally divorced from what's going on in the real world. Mm. Uh, it's the world of business which exists for itself. Now, at the same time that he's doing this at the Bank of International Settlements, um, you have Henry Morgenthau in the United States working for Franklin Roosevelt, um, Secretary of the Treasury, who's trying to insist that this banking operation be closed down. Mm. He wants to make sure that after the end of the war, Germany is flattened that there's no possible way for Germany to rearm itself or to have any industrial capacity whatsoever, right? Mm. But Henry Morgenthau is Jewish. And so the uh, right wing in the United States starts a whisper campaign against him, trying to influence Roosevelt in the other direction, saying, well, Henry Morgenthau is just a Jew. He wants revenge for whatever happened in the Holocaust, which we don't really know because we can't see it. We don't know what's going on. Um, and so you had this battle of wills between the the pro-Nazi camp in the United States and the anti-Nazi camp, which extended right through the war. And it involved people like the Bushes. It involved uh, Sullivan Cromwell, which is Alan Dulles's uh, law firm. Uh, Alan Dulles later became head of CIA. But at that time, he was in Switzerland. As did Bush. As did Father as, of W. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah father of mm. W. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about a very small group of people. It's an incestuous little circle of people who run things, you know, and it's a gentleman's club. It's an old boys club. Mm. And if you're not wearing the right tie, you don't belong to the club and you don't have, you know, any influence on what's taking place or what's going on. But isn't the Jews also in the banker class? How did they handle this? Well, uh, yes and no. People bring this up to me uh, quite often and they say, well, you know, uh, the Jews on all the banks. And I'll say, uh, maybe Jews own banks, but they don't own the money that's in the banks. Mm, mm. Uh, and that's the difference. The old money is what calls the shots. Mm. So they can easily move their money from one bank to another um, without, any, without anybody being able to stop them. So I've always felt that this idea of the Jewish banking thing, yes, it's true. There's a lot of Jewish people involved in banking. Uh, they pretty much had to be. They were sort of kept out of other industries in, in Europe mm. uh, because of all the regulations. So... Yeah, of course, that, that's true. We have to accept the fact that there are Jewish bankers in the world. Mm. But Jewish bankers were not there helping to support uh, the Nazis. We had very specific banks, the Bank of International Settlements, of course, being the primary example. But we also had German banks with offices and branches all over the world that were moving money uh, backwards and forwards. And there was the uh, the First National Bank and the um, the uh, the National Bank, the, um, the the Federal Reserve, vaults in New York City, which were holding Nazi gold reserves, hmm. and did so, I mean, did so long after the war. But did the Nazis manage to transfer some of the loot and plunder already before the war or before the end of the war? Oh, certainly. Hmm. Absolutely. We, we have the records. We have the documentation on this. That's not a mystery. Yeah, I know some of these Bormann and stuff, uh, they had this escape plan from 43, 44. But sure. even before it turned, they uh, transferred the uh, values. Well, what they were doing is they were uh, building foreign bases. They were building industrial and economic bases in other countries hmm. to help support the war effort. I think it's not really well known, for instance, that Mexico, 
during the night, late 1930s was very pro-Nazi because they were very anti-American. Mm. Uh, you know, the gringos to the north were the enemy. You know, the Norte Americanos were the ones who were the, the oppressors of Mexico. So from their point of view, they sided with the Nazis. So many anti-colonial powers sided with Hitler and the Nazis. Yeah, and Argentina was famous. Yes. I mean, Peron and even Eva Peron were spies, weren't they, for the oh, Nazis? Well, they worked for the Nazis 100%. There's no, no doubt about that. But what we don't realize is that part of the reason was the industrial element. The raw materials in these countries were necessary to the Nazi war machine. Mexico had petroleum. Yeah. Uh, the Nazis needed the oil. Mexico was shipping oil to Nazi Germany. Uh, until the Americans really pressured them to stop doing that, mm. at which point the Mexicans would transship the oil to Panama, and then Panama would ship it to, to Nazi Germany. Mm. So you had, what I'm trying to, uh, to say with this is that there were reasons for the Nazis to have economic connections and interests in many countries around the world, and that that became more important as the war started to go against them. They started to expatriate technology, uh, uh, money, uh, personnel, all around the world, so they would not suffer the same humiliating defeat they had at the end of World War I. They wanted to make sure their industrial base was secure. So as early as 1943, the shipping started. By 1944, it was going in earnest. You were shipping gold abroad. Uh, I, I come across, I, I mentioned it in, uh, in Ratline and I think in Hitler Legacy, that we know, we just came across documents in the last couple of years mm. that the Bank of Portugal shipped 40 tons of gold mm. of nazi gold to macau to their their portuguese colony in asia to macau of which 20 tons of it went to indonesia another 20 tons went into china 20 tons mm. of gold and that's only one shipment that we know of right um wasn't there also some measures taken i think i read somewhere that the bush family got uh, busted and fined for some uh, collaboration Yes, that was the Trading with the Enemy Act. Uh, in 1942, they were identified as people who were still trading with the Nazis. They had no problem doing that. The government turned against them uh, and shut them down, fined them, closed their company for a while. Um, but that didn't stop the major uh, situation from taking place, which was, for instance, um, AT&T, IT&T, were both dealing with Nazi Germany during the war. IBM was dealing with Nazi Germany during the war. Standard Oil was really a German company. Mm. Um, uh, AEG, Telefunken, uh, all of these companies had branches in the United States, mm. had branches around the world. There was no way to stop the American involvement of the, the, in, the involvement of American industry and economic uh, institutions with Nazi Germany. It was pervasive. It was everywhere. Even as traitors, they got away with it. Yes. Uh, I also read that uh, there was, uh, prior to the war, there was a coup attempt that uh, an American general whistle blew on, but nothing came out of it. They stopped it, of course, but no one was punished. Uh, a coup attempt against Roosevelt? Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, wealthy people in America. I yes. think you wrote about this. I did. This was a coup attempt against President Roosevelt. Yes. Yeah. They had they had were planning it. They were they were uh, training people to take over. They were doing all of this. They, they were it was generals who were extremely right wing, who did not want Roosevelt to go to war with Germany. Mm. Uh, they felt that Roosevelt was Jewish, which <laughs> evidently was one of their major problems with him. Mm. They thought he was a communist. They thought he was a dictator. I mean, I've read the um, 
the material from that time, mm. uh, criticizing Roosevelt in very harsh terms. And it's extremely reminiscent of how some of the similar information is being disseminated against President Obama. Mm. Uh, in Obama's case, he's a Muslim. He's not a Jew, according to these these tirades. But he's also a dictator. He's a communist. He's all the rest of it. He's going to take America down. Yeah. The whole thing. Mm. you know. Mm. And all of that was done against Roosevelt because the right did not want America to go to war against Germany. They wanted America to either stay out of it or, or actively support Nazi Germany. And Roosevelt had a very hard time with that. So they wanted to attempt a military coup or an assassination attempt. There was an assassination plotted uh, in the United States, which was foiled. I mentioned that in Hitler Legacy also. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a coup attempt, of course, that was also foiled. But who was these people? <clears throat> well, they were right-wing uh, generals in the, uh, in the United States Army. Uh, they were right-wing industrialists as well. Mm -hmm. There was a rumor that Charles Lindbergh, might have been involved. Charles Lindbergh, of course, was a, a major um, uh, figure in the movement to keep out of the war against Nazi Germany. Mm. Um, there who, were, who disappeared, didn't he? He pretty much disappeared, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, um, because of his position politically, once Pearl Harbor was attacked, his organization basically closed down. But until that time, he was very actively trying to get uh, uh, support in the United States to stay out of the war. Uh, he made a lot of speeches. Uh, we had uh, a Catholic priest in Detroit, um, Father Coughlin, who was uh, uh, an outspoken critic of Roosevelt, an outspoken supporter of the Nazis. In his bookstore in Detroit at his church, you could get copies of Henry Ford's book on the Jews, the international Jew. You could also get copies of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, mm -hmm. that famous hoax document that said the Jews were uh, involved in a global conspiracy to destroy the world. So you had Catholic priests involved in this coup attempt. Mm -hmm. You had uh, He was very much involved. You had uh, a right-wing, crazy Russian... Uh, uh, a white Russian living in Connecticut who was involved. You had all kinds of, of people who were involved in this thing. They really wanted uh, to put an end to Roosevelt's presidency by any means necessary. And the idea was, let's let's have a military coup, take over the country. Uh, you, General so-and-so, you'll take this area, you'll take that area. They were forming the plans to do it, to take over the country and put it under martial law, mm. to keep Roosevelt from going to war against Germany. That's how strongly they felt about this. Mm. And all thanks to one loyal general, they failed. Yes. Mm. Okay, so we've covered uh, a lot of stuff here, uh, the philosophical aspect, uh, a little about the practical, but... I want to go over to something that is also less known, namely Nazi ties to three different religions or factions. Uh, and I'm talking still in a timeline before the war. I mean, we could have a field day after the war, but even before the war, the Nazi ties to Catholicism, to early Islamism, and even to Zionism. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on, on these three phenomena? Sure. Um, I began researching the Catholic Nazi ties back a long time ago when I wrote Unholy Alliance, even before then. Um, as a person who was born Catholic, I found it uh, unbelievable that there should be uh, a pope and cardinals and bishops protecting Nazi war criminals after the war. Mm. But this is, this is so. We have to go back to the point where Vatican City became an independent country. Mm. And that was done because of an agreement with Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini, in exchange for Catholic support of fascism, declared that the Vatican would be their own separate country with their separate rules and passports and everything else. So 
there was a, a, a rapprochement between the fascists under Mussolini and the Pope. And then that became the concordat between the Pope then and uh, Nazi Germany. So there was an agreement that, you know, the Germans, uh, the Nazis in particular, would not uh, bother Catholics living in Germany, and the Pope would not say anything bad about Nazis mm. and would not work against the Nazis. So that goes back to the 1930s, that particular type of relationship. But that that is real politic. That is uh, pragmatic, maybe. People may have trouble with it. They may say, well, the Pope had to do it. But there's more to it than that. There were bishops and priests who were extremely pro-Nazi, who had pro-Nazi feelings, believed in the ideology 100%, hated communism, thought the Nazis were the best thing to defend <laughs> European Christianity you know, against communism. So you had uh, Bishop Alois Hudal, a very famous pro-Nazi who wrote about National Socialism uh, in very favorable light. Uh, he was very prominent later after the war in helping war criminals escape to South America. You had uh, the Catholic regime, for instance, in Croatia, the Ustashi. Mm. Uh, this was very pro-Nazi, very anti-Semitic. Uh, not only anti-Semitic, they hated they hated Serbians, they hated Serbian Orthodox, they hated everybody. Mm. Um, basically <laughs> turned the whole country into a concentration camp. Right. So you had a, a lot of Catholic, and these were very pious Catholics. You know, you have Archbishop Stepanac, uh, who is uh, set up to be canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church, who actually was very involved with the Ustashi uh, and protecting Ustashi um, money, hiding uh, their valuables in his church, and being actively involved in some of the excesses of the Ustashi regime against the Jews. So you have this, this tradition of Catholic prelates, especially the 1920s, 1930s, and through the 1940s, and after the war, of being pro-Nazi in sympathy and being pro-Nazi in activity, of actually helping them to escape. Um, part of this was the idea that the, the Nazis had that Jesus could not possibly have been Jewish. Okay, Jesus had to be an Aryan. Uh, Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman legionnaire, according to the story. Right. So he was obviously an Aryan. Right. So you have the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus, right, uh, idea. Mm. And this all comes from this belief. They, the Nazis were actually rewriting, literally, rewriting the Bible to remove all references to Judaism. Wow. Good luck. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but that was their agenda. So they created their own church. They created a kind of German nationalist church huh. as well, which was going to be very Christian and at the same time very anti-Semitic. I mean, it was just this fantasy land they were living in. And the contortions. Didn't they have, uh, wasn't one of the popes at that time a Nazi sympathizer? Well, Pius XII, you know, had Nazi sympathies. I mean, there's a lot of revisionist history these days. People are trying to say, well, the pope did the best he could. Mm -hmm. uh, the pope was trying to save the Christians, the Catholics living in Germany from being persecuted. So he had to do what he had to do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, if you really go back and look at all of the documentation, you're going to come away with a different point of view. Mm. Um, maybe Pius XII was not a real lover of the Nazis, but he hated communism more and was perfectly willing to work with the Nazis to stop the spread of communism. That's the deal that he made. And that mentality is what we here in the United States have to deal with constantly today. Mm. That's why we have red states and blue states, where we have a complete political division in this country is goes back to World War II, mm. goes back to the right-wing generals who wanted to assassinate Roosevelt and take over the country. It goes back to that mentality. You're either against, if you're against communism, 
then you're a Nazi. Mm. You know, if you're against Nazism, then you must be a communist. Those are the only two yeah. options available. Always that uh, communist ghost uh, yeah. used to excuse Nazism. Sure. But is it true that the former pope was uh, in SS when he was young? Oh, no. Uh, uh, when you say former, you mean Benedict, I guess. Yeah, Benedict. Uh, Benedict was in the uh, Hitler Youth when he was young. But oh, so he was that young. Okay. He was very young. He was in Hitler Youth. And virtually everyone was in Hitler Youth. Yeah. And I can't really hold that against him. He was a German living in Germany. Yeah. Uh, I think he had no choice. Mm. So I'm not going to, although as much as I dislike Benedict, I'm not going to call him a Nazi yet. Um, John Paul II, uh, there was uh, an idea. He worked for I.G. Farben before he became a priest. I.G. Farben, of course, manufactured the, uh, the Zyklon B crystals that were used to kill the Jews in the gas chambers. That's a very tenuous connection as well. But we know John Paul II's anti-communism was very strong. Mm. So, you know, my, the jury is still out where that's concerned. Paul VI, however, the former Cardinal Montini, Secretary of State under Pius XII, was very responsible for helping Nazi war criminals to escape under something he called Caritas uh, Charity, which was um, a kind of refugee organization uh, that was set up to help uh, refugees from the war, but which was used a lot to provide false documentation for Nazi war criminals seeking to get out of Europe and go to South America yeah. or the Middle East. And this, uh, people, is detailed much more in Peter's book, uh, Ratline. It's such an important book, and it's very well written too. And we'll have to have you back just for a show on that, Peter, because it's so much material there, and it's so fascinating. But what about Zionism connections to Nazism? Well, initially, you know, um, Adolf Eichmann, uh, the very famous Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution, mm. uh, Eichmann actually studied Hebrew and Yiddish. And the idea was that he was going to go to the Middle East and try to cut some deal with the, uh, with the Zionist community there to take all the Jews out of Germany. Mm. He didn't want any Jews in Germany. The final solution was get rid of the Jews in Germany by any means necessary. Mm. And one of these means was possibly arranging with Zionist to take the Jews off his hands. Mm. Uh, Menachem Begin, uh, who later became a very important commando and then later prime minister of Israel, mm. Menachem Begin worked directly with the Nazis at some point in order to see if they could cut a deal whereby uh, they could take the Jews out of Germany and move them to the Middle East. The problem with that arrangement was that there was a very vocal opponent to this, which was the, the Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, a very famous leader of the Palestinian liberation movement, mm. um, who did not want any Jews, of course, any extra Jews in the Middle East. He wanted them all killed. Mm. Um, so he went to Berlin and put his story through that he wanted to make sure that the Nazis would not be sending any more Jews to the Middle East. They had their hands full as it was, and they were trying to get rid of as many as possible. And he would work with Hitler uh, to eradicate the Jews in North Africa and the Middle East. He would cooperate fully in that regard. Mm. He was the Grand Mufti. He was the, the spiritual leader of Palestine um, through a series of Byzantine political machinations. But he became very prominent. Uh, he he fought for the Ottoman Turks, for the Ottoman Empire in World War I. Mm. Uh, and then later, when he saw that the British uh, had decided to keep the Middle East carved up between themselves and the French, basically betrayed the Arab revolt, mm. as well as, of course, defeated Ottoman Turkey, um, he became politicized. 
disillusioned. Yeah, yeah completely. Completely the West. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And turned into, turn into hatred. He, turn, he believed that there was a global Jewish conspiracy mm. uh, against the world and that he was witnessing it every day in the British Mandate of Palestine. And it was a hard argument to refute because you had suddenly an influx of Jews coming into Palestine. These were Europeans. Mm. You had the British working with Zionist organizations in Europe to carve up the Middle East, according to his his perception. So he could make a very good case that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy Mm. and that it was taking place in in Palestine and that Muslims were going to be affected by it. They were being disenfranchised. So the Zionist Corporation, uh, I read that many rich and leading Jews were saved because of uh, some kind of uh, rat line for them, whereas the poor and the so-called ghetto Jews were the ones ending up in concentration camps. Is this... Uh, is oh, this yeah. Sure, like, like in every circumstance like this, especially in wartime, mm. you have tremendous corruption. So if you have a wealthy Jew or a wealthy anyone mm. who can pay their way out of going to the camps and bribe an officer somewhere, it was going to happen. Mm. Um, in the same rat lines that were being used to move uh, Nazi war criminals out of the reach of the Allies were also being used to move Jewish people into Palestine, into Israel, mm. uh, sometimes in the same building. you know, wow. There were hotels, there were uh, guest houses in the Tyrol uh, on the border between uh, Italy and Austria. That were that was the you know the major place the, where where Nazi war criminals would flee the area around Bolzano, mm. uh, and this was the major locus of all the false paperwork, the false documentation for everyone. So you had Nazi war criminals in the same guest houses as Jews who were fleeing uh, uh, the same situation. They were going to mm. to Palestine, and the Nazis were going to South America, and they would be in the same room. You know, they would be yeah, this, but this explain yep. why Zionism has been so dominating in Israel, because if many of the Jews who got out of the sinking ship that was Europe were Zionists, because they sure. wanted to exit, yes, yes. So we can pay, yeah, sure. Right, sure. And the rest into the camps. Yeah. That makes sense. It does make sense. And poor people who ended up in the camps, they would be moderate, uh, normal people, so to speak. Or and or they would be religious Jews. They'd be believing Jews. They would be yeah. people easily easily identified, yeah. you know, as Jews by the Nazis. Whereas yeah, Jeff- because the Zionists were more ideology, sure. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, less religious in the beginning. Yeah. 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 Mm. But what about uh, Islam? Uh, I know that uh, Islamism, uh, fundamentalism, was set up by the British, but then, especially after the war, hijacked by the Nazis. Wasn't there some kind of respect or cooperation between, like the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, and uh, Nazism? Well, there was to a certain extent. Hitler himself, especially in the beginning, had no time for Muslims. As far as he was concerned, uh, he equated Muslims with Arabs, and Arabs were Semites, and they were all useless to him. Mm. Uh, but as the war progressed and he needed as many allies as possible, uh, Himmler persuaded him to work with the Muslims because, number one, the Muslims were not a quote-unquote slave religion. There was a religion of warriors, mm. and that appealed to Himmler and eventually appealed to Hitler as well. These were people who had fought the Jews and defeated them, you know, in their area, got rid of the Jews mostly in the Middle East. So that appealed also to Himmler and to Hitler's idea of an ally. Mm. Uh, I think the handwriting was eventually be on the wall and they would have turned against them eventually. But at least during the time of the war, it was useful to make this kind of an alliance. Um, the Germans have always had, uh, since the, the World War One, before the war, 
they had had this fascination with the Middle East and with uh, with Islam. And there was a very famous uh, amateur archaeologist called Max von Oppenheim, who uh, spent a lot of time in that part of the world. He lived in Egypt. Uh, he seemed to have converted to Islam. We're not quite sure of the details. But he was an advisor to Kaiser Wilhelm. Uh, and he advised the Kaiser when World War I was about to take place, about to start. He advised the Kaiser to talk to the Sultan of the Ottoman Turks and convince them to convince the Sultan to declare a global jihad wow. against all the enemies of Islam. This was the first instance yeah. in Islamic history of a global war against the infidel, and it was inst instigated by Germans. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, and I know Sebottendorf, too, was fascinated by mystical Islam, Sufism. Yes. So, there was links there. The, the Germans who were interested in Middle East, wasn't it for archaeological and uh, antediluvian purposes? Sure, there was a lot of that interest. I mean, um, we talk, we can talk about uh, T.E. Lawrence, for instance, in the days before World War I. Uh, Lawrence was always at one dig, and there were, you know, the Germans were at another dig, and there was always this competition. And it appeared as though the Germans were looking for whatever they could find. I mean... Uh, Schliemann, you know, discovered Troy, yeah. and this was a major boost to the idea of archaeology, that, that maybe all these mythologies were true, mm. uh, and let's go and find these antediluvian societies that people claimed existed, that there was, uh, before the flood, there were these vast cities in, in Iraq, uh, and in Egypt, and in Africa, and places like that, so you had this, this a lot of motivation to find these, these things, and the, the German archaeologists were very motivated by this. Max von Oppenheim was um, an archaeologist, but he was also involved in mysticism. He was involved in, you know, Islamic religion and, and very strange North African practices. He traveled amongst the Berbers in North Africa and all of that. He was, like a lot of, uh, a lot of Germans, fascinated by that part of the world. And uh, it was close enough, you know, to Germany to, to reach, you know, pretty easily. And it was kind of a playground for these guys, you know. Mm -hmm. So Islam became... Islam in those days was not what we have been trained to think of Islam today. You know, in the West, we're trained to think of Islam in a certain way. Mm. And that's, that's uh, unfortunate because there's really no reality <laughs> between the, you know, the, the way Islam is being presented. No, but we need a ghost. After Soviet collapse, sure. we need yes. some bad guy to blame. So, yeah. There we, and we have it in Islam. Mm. And that's, the problem with that is that there are one billion Muslims in the world, yeah. and we're, we're pissing every one of them off. So <laughs> that's not really a healthy attitude to take. But I've lived among uh, Muslims for a long time. I lived in Malaysia for seven years mm. uh, in a Muslim country. I've lived and traveled a lot in Indonesia and places like that. So um, I know that the picture we present about Islam is totally at variance with what the reality is. But mm. at any rate, um, you had groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, you had uh, nationalist groups that arose in reaction to the fact that we, by we I mean the British and the French, betrayed the Arab revolt. The Arabs thought they were getting their independence. They ignored mm. the call to jihad coming out of Constantinople, coming out of Istanbul. They ignored this completely. You know, they fought against the Turks because they thought they were going to have liberation, and in the end, they did not. Because that's uh, what they got in Europe, Bulgaria, Greece, all these countries who had been under the Ottoman uh, Empire, mm -hmm. they got their independence, but sure. the Arabs, they were double uh, betrayed. Yes, mm. they were betrayed upon betrayal upon betrayal, and because of oil. 
and because of access to the Suez Canal, all of these geopolitical considerations, mm. uh, they were betrayed. They were uh, completely. There's no way around that particular part of history. We have to admit that's what happened. And that's why there was this growth of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's why there was the growth of so many organizations. The hatred of the West was a minor it was a minority position among a lot of very pious Muslims who saw in the West, you know, decadence and degradation and, you know, all this other stuff. Mm. But then it became a battle cry once they had been betrayed. And then there was the scapegoating. Well, the West is decadent and it's uh, irreligious and it's anti-spiritual. It's very materialistic. And now they've betrayed us. So there's something wrong with the West entirely. There's something wrong with their culture, their religion, their economics, everything. We reject all of it. And that's what's happened. That's what we're dealing with today. Um, and if that betrayal had not taken place, uh, I think history would have been quite different. If the Arabs had their independence yeah. and we walked away. You know, and let uh, let let the thing play out the way it should have played out. I think this, you know history would be quite different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I also think it wouldn't have been so much friction also between Israel, uh, the Jews, and the Muslims, because they no, have I mean, lived there for thousands of years together. Prince Faisal, Prince Faisal, the man who was uh, portrayed by Alec Guinness in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, mm. Prince Faisal uh, had no problem with allowing a Jewish homeland in Palestine. He said it in writing. You know, he said it to the British. As long as he was still the king. Mm. I mean, he was the Hashemite king of Mecca and Medina. He was the guy in charge of the holy places, which included the Dome of the Rock mm. and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So he said, you know, as long as I'm still the king, we can give out a whole bunch of land in Palestine you know, for the Jews. I have no problem with this. Mm. You know, he said that. But then he got betrayed. Mm. He was not allowed to remain king. He was kicked out. Ibn Saud was put in his position. Oh, yeah. The corrupt, instead. corrupt families. Corrupt family. Mm -hmm. The Wahhabi, the very fanatic uh, religious family as well. And uh, that's why we call that country Saudi Arabia today. Mm. It's because it's named after his family, uh, Ibn Saud. So now we have, we're, we're, you know, we've made so many mistakes, one after the other after the other, and we betrayed our promises constantly. Uh, and build up fanatical strains such yes. as Wahhabism and yes. Salafism. It's yes. crazy. It's crazy. And it's it's a part of the post-war analysis, I think, because it uh, directly links to where we are today. Yeah. But we've been on quite a fascinating journey uh, today, Peter. We've been all over the place, but we've been very disciplined in keeping within the timeline until more the, or less yes. uh, end of the war. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, when we get you back, we will have to zoom in on these extremely fascinating post-war phenomenons connected to everything we talked about. But before we close today, uh, I want to wrap up some notes I did during your elaborations uh, that were a little unclear, so maybe you could just clear them up. First, you mentioned that Hitler back in the day got connected, especially through Eckhart. Did he meet Anton Drexel, the, the, the founder of what became the National Socialist uh, Party? Did he meet him through Eckhart? No, no, no. He he met Drexel directly when he was sent to spy on the German Workers' Party. Right, right. Now, Drexel was already there. Mm, uh, mm. Hitler became uh, a member of the party and then eventually took it over. Drexel was a locksmith. Uh, he was a guy who was one of the organizers of the early German Workers' Party. Mm, mm, I see. And you mentioned also that 
uh, the meeting between, I think it was Liebenfels and Hitler was mentioned in a biography, but it was unclear if you meant Hitler's biography, Mein Kampf. No, no, no. It was in uh, Lance von Liebenfels' own uh, statements. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. A um, couple of more points. I know that Gestapo Müller on uh, the order of... Uh, I think it was on behalf of Mr. Bormann, researched potential Jewish blood in Hitler's heritage. Mm-hmm. Now, it's rumored that he found that, I think it was Hitler's aunt or some relative, worked for the Rothschilds. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, there there were a lot of connections that way um, between Hitler and having Jewish uh, relatives. And of course, having uh, having family that worked for the Jews and for the Rothschilds in particular, mm. that particular case, yes. Um, but a lot of this was suppressed. Gestapo Müller was doing this because, for, well, for two reasons. Um, one, he wanted some leverage, mm. uh, just in case he needed it against Hitler for blackmail purposes, but also so that Hitler would know in advance where the problems were. I think we didn't mention the fact that when Hitler came to power finally, he uh, made sure that people who had knowledge of his life, especially his private life, uh, before he became Chancellor of Germany, were picked up and killed. Uh, one of them was Hanussen, who was a very famous psychic uh, in Berlin society, who taught Hitler how to speak, what gestures to make, how to captivate an audience. Uh, Hanussen ah. was very, he was very instrumental hmm. uh, in convincing Hitler when everything seemed like it was over for him and for the Nazi party in 1932. Hmm. It was Hanussen who said, don't worry about it. You perform a ritual in your place of birth. You pull out at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve a mandrake root from a cemetery. And I assure you, your future will be uh, secure. And by the end of January, you will be chancellor of Germany. He told this to Hitler when there seemed no possibility that Hitler would survive politically. Hanussen actually went and did this ritual, uh, came back, and Hitler became chancellor of Germany on precisely the day that Hanussen had predicted he would. Hanussen, when Hitler became chancellor, was taken out and shot um, to cover up that story. But he, Hanussen, must be said to be maybe Hitler's real spiritual father then. Uh, Possibly. And he taught Hitler a lot of things. Hitler was fascinated with Hanussen. Uh, By having Hanussen around him, Hitler didn't need to join any secret societies or cults. He had somebody with a direct link, you know, a direct contact, somebody who could entertain him and at the same time predict things and make things happen. Mm. But there was also a Catholic priest, uh, his name was Stempfel, who had uh, a lot of blackmail information on Hitler, particularly uh, uh, involving Hitler's niece uh, who committed suicide. Uh, Hitler was famously in love with this uh, niece, I think her name was Angela Raubel, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, something was fishy between him and Angela, and there was, uh, we don't really know the whole story, but at any rate, eventually, uh, she committed suicide in her apartment, an apartment paid for by Hitler. You don't subscribe to the hypothesis that he killed her or got her killed? It's... Because she threatened to reveal his Jewish heritage or their affair or something like that? Yeah, it's it's possible. Mm. Um, Hitler was obviously racked with guilt over her death. Okay. I mean, he, he memorialized it every year mm. since she was dead. He kept that apartment pristine. No one was allowed to rent it or to live in it yeah, that's right. while he was alive. So it was like a mausoleum. It was a shrine, basically, yeah. To, yeah. To, to her. So 
whatever happened, whether he killed her or she killed herself, that information uh, was held. There were some letters, there was some documentation that was held by this particular priest. And he, of course, was taken out and murdered as well the same night. This was the uh, sort of the night of the long knives when Hitler settled all of his scores and killed everybody who was in opposition to him. Even S.A. Even S.A. Yeah, even the head of the S.A., Ernst Röhm. Yeah. All of these people were murdered, um, taken out into the woods and shot, or however they were killed, they were killed. So uh, there was a lot of blackmail potential there. Gestapo Müller would prob- was probably looking into the same ideas, the same material. Uh, and some of it made its way to the National Archives. So uh, not a lot of it, but scraps of it did make its way to hmm. the German records, uh, the, the archive in the National, in the, um, excuse me, the Library of Congress, uh, where I came across it. The last question, uh, Peter, why on earth did Hess, whom many regard as, you know, everything is relative, you're talking about Nazis after all, but they regard him as maybe more peaceful, I don't know if that image is deserved, but why would he, in 1940, be so suicidal that he went to England? And, uh, well, I guess his fate we should get back to in a post-war episode. But just why did he go there? Well, in the first place, Haushofer told him it was a great astrological time for him to try to form an alliance between Nazi Germany and England. Um, (laughs) And the person he went to see uh, was a known Nazi sympathizer, uh, a member of the uh, the House of Lords who was a Nazi sympathizer. So he was flying deliberately to meet him. And to see if he could. But did he get guarantees that he wouldn't be captured? No. Well, this is what's fishy about this story. He's making this flight to England right around the time that Operation Barbarossa, which is the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis and the breaking of the Stalin Pact, mm. was being uh, put into motion. So for some reason, Hess flies to England. Was it a diversion? Was there something else behind Hess's flight? It's always been kind of a mystery because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Uh, Hess went there. He went there to talk uh, to the to, to, to the politicians in England to try to form a, a peace treaty. I mean, that's the cover story anyway that we have. And nobody talks to him. What happened? Winston Churchill refused to talk to him. Winston Churchill refused to the second most important man in Germany, Hitler's right hand man who flies into his country under cover of darkness. You know, parachutes out and says, take me to your leader, basically. And Winston Churchill says, uh, literally, his words were, um, I'm not going to watch, I'm not going to deal with Hess. I want to watch the Marx Brothers. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, oh, where would the world of quotes be if it yeah, wasn't for Churchill? <laughs> if it wasn't for Churchill. So he has the projector set up. He's watching the Marx Brothers. He doesn't want to hear about about Hess. What does that mean? What was really going on? There's something else going on. And, of course, the post-war aspect of this is important as well. But when Hess was in captivity during the war, there was a rumor this wasn't really Hess. And uh, the head of British intelligence and the head of American intelligence, while Bill Donovan at the time, all of these guys wondered whether or not, you know, the Hess in captivity was really Hess. Uh, they were looking for scars. They were looking for for certain things that would tell whether or not this guy was who he said he was. Uh, there was an idea that this was a, a, a you know an imposter for some reason, and they kept an imposter. Not a double. A double. Just an imposter. No, well, a double. Yes. Yeah. Mm, okay. Mm. Yeah. Or or an imposter. I mean, but basically a double. Hess is double. Mm. But then, if that's so, then where, what happened to the real Hess, which we haven't seen? So I don't know. You know, there was a lot of mystification about the flight of Hess. 
There was a lot more to it, and we'll never know. Um, How did they capture him? Where did they capture him? He flew. I mean, he flew into he, he was off slightly uh, where his landing was concerned. His plane kind of crash landed. He got out of the plane and a couple of farmers found him and they brought him to the local constabulary. And that was the end of it. It doesn't sound like a very professional diplomatic mission to me. No, it was a very ignominious <laughs> end to that diplomatic mission. Yes. I'm just taking this right out of the air. But is there any traces that Borman could have been involved to outsmart him or fool him somehow to get in a better position himself? Well, Bormann was known for that. Bormann was, was a real political animal. Mm. And whoever was between him and Hitler, he had to get rid of one way or the other. And that meant Himmler. That meant uh, Ernst Kaltenbrenner. That meant uh, uh, von Ribbentrop. Everybody you know, had to get out of the way between himself and, and Hitler. So that's a possibility, too. Mm. But there's another possibility, which, as I mentioned in, in Unholy Alliance, is the Nuremberg trial. At the Nuremberg trial, Hess gets up to make a speech. Mm. And he starts to talk about mind control in this speech. Wow. They cut him off immediately. They don't allow him to talk anymore. After only a couple of minutes of talking, they cut him off and they say, that's it, enough for you, forget it, no more. It's a tantalizing introduction. If you read his Nuremberg speech, it's very short because they didn't let him talk. <laughs> but he's starting to talk about mind control and how you know things are not what they seem, and then he's cut off and that's the end of it. <laughs> that's so fascinating. Yeah. And you uh, are known, actually, for having written books on mind control and stuff, like uh, your serious... Um, Sinister Forces. Sinister yeah. Forces. Yes. So, but today we've been covering stuff, especially from your book on Holy Alliance, A History of Nazi Involvement with Occult, which I guess is your first book uh, yes. on this topic. Really a good read, people, especially if you're into the more esoteric aspects of, of this. Now, next time we have Peter on, we'll go more into aspects that's partly covered in this book, but uh, also his next book called Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. And, as I'm sure you got by now, Peter is a fact-based researcher. So, even if, you know, the notion that Hitler didn't commit suicide in a bunker is news to you, I recommend you reserve judgment to you hear the evidence. And the third book, of course, being The Hitler Legacy, that you alluded to in this interview too, The Nazi Cult in Diaspora, How It Was Organized, How It Was Funded, and Why It Remains a Threat to Global Security in the Age of Terrorism. And I believe this is a very important topic to, to cover. So, uh, thank you a lot for coming on and sharing with us everything that you know. My pleasure. So fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, that uh, concludes the forum for today. Tune in again in the future, folks, when we're having Peter back to elaborate on the even more fascinating, yet disturbing, continuation of this subject. As part of our series on uncovering an hitherto less known aspect of our global history, where we learn much more about the dealings and movements of these dark players on the world scene. Finally, let me remind you that if you enjoy our programs, we could need a helping hand with covering costs to keep the forum going. Until next time, I remain your sincere host, Al, together with Bella, the technician, and Mr. Mo, the webmaster. Be seeing you.
who is number one?